are in the Thessalonians. I don't know if this will take the whole time, but I don't really want to get into the pastoral letters today. So if we get out early, we get out early, right? Yeah, that was very adamant. Right. Okay, we're done. <laughs> um, we are um, well, Thessalonians. Uh, two letters to the book of Thessalonians. Um, Paul on his second missionary journey, went from Syria, uh, the Syrian Antioch, to uh, uh, Macedonia, to Philippi, to Amphiolus, to Apollyon, remember no Jewish synagogue there, to Thessalonica, which is about 100 miles west of Philippi. This map here, it's number seven. Right up in there. Nelson's 3D Bible maps. Love them. <laughs> um, in Thessalonica, there seems to be a very strong Jewish community there. Um, so it's first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. He will later write two letters encouraging the Christians in the town. Um, this is probably the first letter that Paul that we have that Paul writes. Uh, so, like, in our Bible, Romans is the first one. Well, Romans is actually probably the last one he writes. Uh, or one of the last ones he writes. And Thessalonians is probably the first one he writes. Because of where it falls place in his missionary journeys, right after the book of Acts. Um, Thessalonica, the city... Um, Thessalonica is actually named after um, Alexander the Great's sister, the wife of uh, Antipater, and um, it was originally named Therma, um, which was Cassandra's son. Anyways, uh, it's a large city, still... um, Still, it's, it's, uh, it's buried underneath the modern city of Th- Thessalonica, Niki, which is one of the most important cities in Turkey today. So it's right underneath the city today. It's a commercial center, major east-to-way trad- uh, trade routes going through the center as they travel on to Rome and down into Greece. Um, major seaport. Uh, important city in the the Peloponnesian Wars, if you're interested in that, um, which is not in your Bibles. <laughs> um, political center, the province governor lives there. It's um, has a very strong, prosperous economy. 
home to many pagan temples. Though unlike Ephesians, the Ephesus, there's no one major uh, god worship there, goddess worship there. It's all kinds. Now, there probably was at one point in the history of Thessalonica, but by this time, there's just all kinds of gods worship there. How many of you guys have read the books of Thessalonica? Yeah, the letters? What do you think the purpose is? Why did he write it? Encouragement, that's actually definitely one of the things that he does in that passage, in that book. Why does Paul write most of his letters? Instructions. He's worried about the church. Um, we don't need to make it complicated. He's just worried about the church. That's why he wrote them. Uh, Paul probably founded the, the church in Thessalonica, uh, the the Christian church anyways. There was a Roman presence already. Um, he did it during opposition. Paul and Silas actually had to slip away during the cover of darkness. A mob from Thessalonica tracked them down and stirred up trouble for them in Berea. You remember we are going through the book of Acts and we talked about some of that. So Paul's worried about the church. And Timothy actually brings kind of some iffy reports to him. As, we re- as you read in uh, the Thessalonians, you see that Timothy brought some, some reports to them that made him worry about them. And so he writes this letter out of concern. Give them instructions, give them encouragement, pray for them. Um, and he teaches. Um, some of the ch- messages in there... Um, we're going to go through a little bit of the first Thessalonians, but overall, we're looking at both Thessalonians. Um, teaches that hard times are part of God's plan. Remember, there are people dying probably out of persecution that he's dealing with. And so hard times are part of God's plan. Um, so Paul and Jesus both had to endure. Um, so stay faithful. Uh, he actually will live in kind of say that it uh, makes you stronger believers if you endure he commends them for their faith and love he uh, he remembers them in his he says he remembers them in his prayer continuously and he is concerned for their long-term survival in the faith as well as in church so he wants them to stay believers he reminds them in first thessalonians we'll see here in a minute he reminds them where you've come from, about your conversion, all this polytheistic conversion. Don't go back to that. Because uh, the temptation, I'm sure, especially as persecution starts to happen, is to go back, well, that's just one of the gods out of the many we worship because it's a polytheistic society. So you can just throw it in with all the one else and no one will think anything of it. What's one other god? When you uh, look at polytheistic societies, they add new deities all the time. That's why some of the, some of the by the time they're done, like uh, Egypt and, and even in Greece and the Greco-Romans, by the time they're done, they got like thousands of different deities. 
just what's one more? As people bring them in from other places, you say, oh, what's one more? That's in the book of Acts. Yeah, that's not in the book of Thessalonians. It's the book of Acts. When, but they left Thessalonica um, under the cover of darkness. Well, the, the book they, in Thessalonians, he's probably writing to both the Jews and the, the Gentiles who are believers in Christ. Because remember, at this time, it's not like there's the Christian religion really hasn't been formed yet. It's Jews who believe in Jesus, and then some Gentiles have begun to believe in Jesus as well. I and mean, that's why they had that big old conference. Well, what do we do with these people? Do we make them become Jewish first? Uh, Acts chapter, was it, 15, where they have that big old conversation. And they're still fighting that. This is still something that's, even though that, that by, this, by this time they've already had that conversation, there are still many Jews who disagree with Paul <laughs> and that conference and want to make them believe Jews first. We call them Judaizers. There's still even people today that want to return to the Jewish roots. I put that in air quotes, return to the Jewish roots. And by what they mean by that is you have to be a Jew first and then you can be a, a Christian, uh, then you can believe in Jesus. And um, they're Judaizers. Um, I see that come up every few years where let's return to the Jewish roots. And some of that is good because you want to remember where it came from and remember the Jewish ways and so it helps you learn the Bible better because they, it was a Jewish writing. So if you remember that, so that's good. You know, you remember that it came from Judaism. It's good. But what they, but it really, what it becomes is let's, re, let's become Jews first. And so you'll see Christians who are Gentiles become Jew. And some of them do it the right way and they actually go through all the process and ceremonies. And some of them just say, I'm a Jew now which no Jewish community is ever going to recognize that. You can't just, that's like, it reminds me of that, um, I don't know if you guys are fans of The Office, the episode where he declares bankruptcy. He rocks into the room and says, I am bankrupt. And they look at him like, that's not how that works. <laughs> um, but I've seen many a Christian do that. I'm Jewish now. And that's not how that works. <laughs> um, but then, you know, there are some that, but we, even today you'll see people that want to see, make people Jewish. Um, and actually, I think that's why one of the areas, as we read Paul's letters, the, the laws that he tells us not to follow are all the ones that make them individually Jewish. The ones that separate them as Judaism, like circumcision and the food laws and the, these things that change, that make their identity Jewish. Remain Gentile. But he says, but there are other laws that he fully endorses. You need to follow these laws because they're God's laws for all your people. They're just not the laws that identify you as Jewish. So, um, so yeah, so he's going to encourage them with uh, further instruction and, and guidelines of the faith in morality, Christian loves... Um, it's a very practical book 
um, gives them insight and encouragement into last things at last days. Actually, uh, one of the most popular things we're going to read a little bit of that is the discussion in this about though this is where the rapture this is the rapture passage is in First Thessalonians, um, and so we'll uh, I might look at a little debate on that one, but uh, we won't do too much on that because I don't want to talk too much Christian theology. I don't want to talk about the book of Thessalonians, but it's in there. This is where that's at. Um, but the main focus isn't on like the rapture or anything like that. The main focus is on God. Um, God is mentioned 36 times in the first Thessalonians. Why don't you look at that book? You can probably take your Bible and flip one page, and that's all it covers. That's, that's, that's the letter. Second Thessalonians is, is, is even shorter. And you probably just want, you know, one, one page that one. You know, that's like, what, two pages? First Thessalonians 3, and like, in my Bible, it's 3 and a, a word. Um, in that short little passage, it mentions God 36 times in First Thessalonians, 18 times in Second Thessalonians. Jesus is mentioned 16 times, uh, 13 times in Second uh, Thessalonians. Lord... Referring to the Lord God, um, not any of the other gods he could have referenced to, he's learning to it, is 24 times in First Thessalonians, 22 in Second Thessalonians, and Christ 10 times in both of them. That's a lot of God. <laughs> he mentions God a lot in this short little passage. So the focus is definitely on God in this passage. So all the other stuff that we could say, well, this is interesting, and that's interesting, and this is not the focus. The focus was on God and how the Thessalonians need to, are responding to him. Excuse me. All right, 1 Thessalonians, probably the earliest letter of the book of Paul, letter of Paul, that we have records of anyways. Outline. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn in my Bible to 1 Thessalonians, and let's just go some of, through some of this, shall we? Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians uh, in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be to you. We always give thanks for you in all, in all your ways, mentioning you in our prayers. We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith and labor prompted by love and your endurance, inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came not only simply with words, but also with power and Holy Spirit, with a deep convic uh, conviction. 
You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became uh, imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of our severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became models uh, to all believers in Macedonia and and, uh, Achaia. This is, I'm reading from the... What version is this? NIV uh, today. You guys know I don't hold to one version over another, so. Um, Thank God. I thank God for you. And I thank God for what he's going and, 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 and. Uh, what he's what he's doing, and that God has chosen you. Now he's speaking directly to the church of Thessalonica. I know God has chosen you. That's the Jewish people that accepted, and the Gentiles. God has chosen you. He's not specifically calling out any one person. I know God chose you. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we, especially as Americans, tend to be very individualistic in it. That means God chose me. Well, yes, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, I chose (laughs) y'all. God chose y'all. It's it's about everybody uh, and that uh, the the church itself was chosen. Uh, I, I point that out because in a lot of Paul's writings, we like to make it about us, about me. Uh, individualistic outpoint when he's talking about like the the bigger like the bigger community like um, like well, in, in Ephesians where he says or, or in Romans where he's talking about how we were preordained and we say well that means I was preordained well that's actually he was talking about all Gentiles not necessarily you individually he's talking about Gentiles were and that's a big difference in the way we think about that. It may not seem like an important thing, but as you go further and further down the line, that makes a big difference how you interpret other passages and how that interprets your, your, your theology. Um, so he reminisces and he uh, talks about his... Um, how the gospel was received. But then in, in, in 2.17, he goes and turns to uh, his concerns for, the, for them. Brothers, when we were torn away from you a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing for you, he was torn from you. That's because he had to tear away. He had to sneak away from them at night because they were being chased away by a mob. Um, that was stirring up trouble. I mean, this is, so I was torn away from you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly. I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us for the, the adversary. That Satan is the adversary. Uh, the adversary uh, can refer to either a individual or just like the idea, like the, the adversaries stopped us. So it can be seen theologically as being maybe it's both at the same time. Maybe, you know, the, the Satan figure, sometimes referred to as Lucifer or the morning star, 
or it could also refer to the adversary. We were stopped by the adversary. Um, Satan stopped us for which, which is what our hope and our joy or crown in which we are glory and presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes when he comes is not um, it is not you indeed you are our glory and joy. So when we stand, we could stand it no longer. We thought we thought it best to left by our, by ourselves in Athens, and we sent Timothy, who is our brother, God's workers, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, strengthen and encourage you in faith, so that no one would be unsettled by those who are in trials. You were know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, so he's, we're destined for what? Trials. He says, we're destined for them. We're destined for the trials we're facing. In fact, when you were, we were with you, we kept telling you that we would, we would be persecuted. And it, it turned out that, out that way, as you well known, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in, that in some way the tempter might have tempted you out, uh, our efforts uh, might have been useless. So I'm af- I was afraid that you would have been tempted back to your old way of life. Isn't that always the temptation, right? So I said this is a very practical book for some of us, right? That temptation to go back to our, pra- our old way of life. And Paul was worried that they would go, especially after all the persecution started. Uh, but Timothy brought us good news. Oh, uh, we were we were encouraged. He says we were encouraged by our by your faith, and how we can thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. That is. I tell you what, that's the kind of church I want us to be, right? Strong enough that when someone says, you know, I was encouraged because of what I heard you guys doing. So may I your love, I like this part, uh, verse uh, 12. May May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other, for everyone else, just as our, as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and further within the Lord Jesus comes to his holy ones. This book is actually written quite interesting. I'll give you an outline of what's being said, but you can also look at some of the things that happens in there. He prays at the beginning, thank God for you. He prays in the middle, and then he's going to pray at the end. So it's, it's, it's. But, and there's two major mo- movements in the, the passage. This prayer actually kind of starts a new movement as he uh, in the, the book. So it starts with prayer. You have this movement, come to start with prayer, and then you have another movement. And then it ends with prayer. Uh, so that he's, uh, I thank God for you. You guys are encouraging. So live for God. Live to please God. Uh, Encouraged to Christian living. 
Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, do this more and more, for you know that instruction we gave you by the authority of Lord Jesus Christ. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should learn to control his own body and, and in that way holy and honor and passion. Um, And he's going to say that he, you need to be in the Lord's instruction, reject man, uh, do not reject man, um, urge you to, uh, to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands, just as we told you. Um, the idea there is to not seek... Uh, all the glory and the, the pressures and just be focused on God. Um, win the respects of outsiders so you will be um, you will not be dependent on anybody. That's one of those passages that I love, right? Don't be dependent on people. <laughs> but at the same time they're supposed to be dependent on God and they're supposed to be dependent as a church on each other. So it's not saying like, okay, I'm an island unto myself. They're saying work hard. Focus on God. You don't need to be dependent of other, other gods, other, other temples, other deities. Work hard. Okay, I thought I saw your hand goes up. That's, stay in your lane. Um, yeah, you could definitely say that. Um. Then he talks the coming of the Lord. And this is probably one of those big questions that the church is having at the time. It's one of those big questions we still ask today, right? When God, Jesus coming? He said he was coming. When's he coming? Uh, Jesus seemed to think it was happening real quick. Paul talks like it's happening the next day. Every generation since then has thought it's coming in their generation. Um still hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, so becoming the Lord. Um, so he, 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 he tells them, he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or, grievously, uh, or grieve like the rest of men have no hope. Fall asleep. He's talking about those who are dead. Probably... Though it doesn't say it's probably as a result of persecution. Remember, this is a time of heavy persecution. They're wanting to know what happens to those people that are dying. Uh, especially those who die in persecution. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him according to the Lord's own word we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will come down from the heavens with a loud command and with the voice of the archangels 
and with the trumpet call, the call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, those who are still alive and are still are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with the word. And here we have the rapture passage. Um, and there's several different ways people see this throughout history as what's happening. And there's not, I know, uh, and, and it seems like, uh, really since the 50s, there's been one major viewpoint, but it has not been agreed upon by any means what this looks like. Um, the, the way I'm sure many of you are most familiar with is like Tim LaHaye's movie, right? Uh, what is that, Left Behind, the, the Left Behind series? Uh, they're, you know, everyone's happening and they're caught up in the air and they go and then everyone else is left behind. Um, and that's the, that's a pre-tribulation dispensational theology. I know those are big words. <laughs> but what it means, referring to the tribu- time of tribulation, that's, that's out in the scriptures, a pre-rapture happens before the tribulation, viewing it in a dispensational way, which is like, the ages, how you dispense with the book of Romans, uh, Revelation. Um, that is by far not the only consistent out there. There's also the post-tribulation viewpoint in which you'll be, I am, I'm post, I, I'm, I'm, I'm post-trib. Um, I, I don't stand in it because, uh, the pre-trib is Christians get to miss all the tribulation, and I hope for that one. But post-trib means you believe the Christians are going to have to go through it with everyone else. And then the tribulation, the rapture, in a, pre- in a pre-trib, you go up and you stay in the sky for, till it's all, till we're all called up, but it says we're going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So there'll be something different till we're all called together. Um, post-trib is when Jesus comes back after the tribulations, the dead in Christ rise and the believers usher him down like a parade um, as he comes down in a processional like in the um, Palm Sunday where they usher him in. And so a post-trib would, would view it as you rise the cloud and you usher him in like a parade. Personally, I know a lot of, most of you guys are pre-trib. I'm post-trib. I'm, um, <laughs> I don't either, but it doesn't mean I am. <laughs> Just because I don't want to go through it doesn't mean I find the theology for it. Um, but, the, but even that, there's not even a consistency. Because some people believe that the dead in Christ will rise, have already risen. When he died, he called them up with him as he left, some people. And that we're waiting on, as we die, he will be called up, and then those who are living when he comes back will usher him forward. 
uh, honestly, because I just read the scriptures and I see that every time that bad things happen, the Christians aren't spared, except for a couple of passages in the book of, uh, in, the, in the Exodus passages. It's just the pattern. Um, so that's, that's just how I come to my, and there are other, and I, and there are other, I mean, obviously I'm not the only one who believes this. Um, I hope for pre, but I tend to be post. <laughs> uh, I hope for pre. Um, I just hope my kids don't have to go through it. What's well, coming's enough. Um, but. No matter how it ends up looking, the idea was that those who were, because we get caught up in this, the idea was those who are dead, and were falling asleep and were dead, will be with Christ before those who are living, and those who are living will be with Christ in the, when, when he returns, uh, no matter how it looks. We get caught up in the, the theology and the, the, the theoretics of it, um, I think sometimes too much. Um, the idea is we'll be with God when he returns. Um, and that's what he was saying. He said, don't worry, because they were worried about the, their brothers and sisters. A lot of them have come out of the Greek society, the Jews, right? They can't, had, a, had a, a viewpoint on, on heaven and hell. Um, actually, there was multiple at the time of Jesus. There's actually two main ones. And we see both of these in the scriptures. You read the second temple readings like Maccabees and, and Judith and stuff like that. You really start to see these. Um, there's two major theories on what hell, heaven and hell looked like in the, in, by the second, in the Jewish world. Um, and some of that has transferred over it, some of it has not. And, but there was also the Greek viewpoint that a lot of these Gentiles had come from the Greek viewpoint where you have the, uh, the, the, the fields of uh, Asterbel, uh Well, that's not the right word. Um, Elysian fields and the... Uh, um, God, that's going to bug me because I know this word. Anyways, their viewpoint on, on, on and, and, and actually, as you read things like Dante's Inferno, you'll see a lot of Greek theology and Roman theology that has worked into that because there's the different layers of heaven and the different layers of hell. That all comes from the Greek theology, the Greco-Roman, as they, they view that as you die, you know, good people go one way and, 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 and bad people go another way and, and there's different levels. Well, this person was not that bad. and So he's not as far down into hell as this person who was really bad and, and this person who was, he was just kind of good versus this guy who was really good. He got to go over there. Um, and those who died in service in the heroes, those got to be all the way up near the gods and and if you were just sort of good, you got to be near, you know. Um, and, 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 and that kind of theology actually works its way into the Christian church for many, many years. And it actually still influences a lot of our thinking, even subconsciously, because of the way we view heaven and hell. 
Um, a lot of that Greek theology is still in a lot of our thinkings. Um, as we, we think about heaven, you might think about things like, well, uh, the idea of purgatory, well, they'll get out of it. Um, there's the idea of, um, uh, of uh, like, well, the seven heavens. Um, um, there's the, um, the, uh, the idea that, um, uh, you know, like, as you become more like God, you, even some we become angels, which is um, not theologically accurate either. That's that that comes to it. That's that's the gist. There's other descriptions of what that might look like, and literalist versus interpretive viewpoints and stuff like that. Um, but the gist of it is heaven. You're in the presence of God, doing your purpose. Hell, you're not doing your purpose, and you're without it. You're out of the presence of God, and so that. Um, and and so there's different different interpretations on how that will look and how that works. We're actually given very little things to go off of. Um, and then we've taken some passages out of context and put them on heaven and hell um, throughout our history. And so some of that, you know, we say, well, this passage, well, actually, probably not, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that's that's the gist. God's presence, doing God's doing your thing with God, co-ruling. Not versus not. <laughs> um, and um, yeah. So those who are in Christ, um, so so as they're worrying about their brothers and saying, "Don't worry, they're going to be with Christ," whether they're they're in the grave and they get to wait till the end because some people view it as you're in the grave, all, people, all the people go to the grave and then, and then you go to heaven and hell and then some people view you go to hell immediately and some people say, well, after it was before Jesus you were in the grave and then after Jesus. There's a lot of different viewpoints. A lot of people talk and the reality is we don't know because we didn't go. <laughs> we weren't there. But he's saying, don't worry, they're going to be with God. And when Christ returns, they're going to get to be with him first, and then we'll be with him. So it's, it's, it's a comfort. That's, that's really what it's supposed to be, a, a passage of comfort, that no matter what, how it looks, they're with God. And uh, this is a very real thing because they're losing people. And they don't, their whole system of how death work was being overthrown because they accept Christ. And so they're saying, what happened? You know, how does this work? Don't worry. They'll be with God. And that was, that's, that's the main takeaway. Um, so eternal life of the church. Um, Day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, so be ready. Peace and safety, destruction will come on them. Now, when it says day of the Lord, a lot of people, uh, there's, there's actually an argument over that too. Are we referring to the end of the age? Or, you know, like Christ coming back? 
Or are they referring to just when judgment comes upon the land? Because day of the Lord in the Old Testament means multiple things. Is he referring to just a when, you know, God calls another army to come in and sweep through the land, it's a time of judgment? Or is it talking about the end of the end of when Jesus comes back? There's a, there's a big argument over that, as, as they say. But either way, it comes quickly, right? Like a thief of the night. If you were prepared for the invading army, they wouldn't invade. They come. <laughs> and so uh, the Lord will come. So be, well, be prepared, no matter how it looks. Be alert and self-controlled. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate in the hope of salvation in the helmet. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sure does. It's like the armor of God in the book of Ephesians. Uh, he doesn't lay out the armor of God like he does in Ephesians. This is probably some of the, the hints that he's developing this armor of God the, uh, like imagery in the way that he will eventually lay it out to the book of Ephesians. Like this is how I've come to see our armor. And this is how he's starting to develop it as he's writing. And he's, he's reading like in the book of Isaiah and sees these ideas. And, and he's, uh, so he's, he's got these ideas. So it's starting to develop in his, the way he's preaching and teaching. Uh, I think that's kind of cool because Paul is growing too. Sometimes we like to think that Paul was just, you know, he's Paul. He's learner of Paul. He's growing as a Christian. As he becomes more sanctified too. As he becomes more like Christ. So he's developing his ideas as we read this. And he's starting to develop that which will become the image of, that we see in Ephesians of the armor of God. Yeah, it really, it, well, that's, as people read it, they could tell, like, this is one of his earlier ones. Um, encourage one another and... Uh, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, fa- just as factor you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you and over you in the Lord, who admonish you, hold them up in the highest regard and love because the work live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn you, those who are idle, encourage the timid, Help the weak, be patient with everybody, making sure everybody that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always trying to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continuously, which is probably my personal favorite verse in the whole Bible. I know it's 517, uh, pray continuously. Love that passage. Pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Avoid every kind of evil, he'll say. And so he'll say, grace and peace of Christ be with you. And that's how he ends his first letter. Now, at some point later, and we don't know exactly when he wrote, there's different viewpoints as to when he wrote uh, Second Thessalonians. Some people put it really early, some people put it late. But it's about, the, it's, it's kind of in the same vein. Uh, he gives thanks for them and, uh, and talks about this 
uh, man of lawlessness. Um, and, and he'll encourage them to never tire of doing what is right. In fact, I think we're going to watch the Bible Project video on Second Thessalonians because it's kind of the same thing. So we'll hear what they have to say. How's that sound? We like the Bible Project videos. All right, and I want you to go ahead and hit play on that one. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So not long after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he got a report about the Christians in Thessalonica, that the problems he had addressed in that letter not only had continued, but had gotten worse. The persecutions had intensified, and the Thessalonian Christians had become confused and scared about the return of Jesus. So Paul sent off this short letter, which is designed to have three sections that address the three problems in this church. Paul first offers hope in the midst of their continued persecution, and then he offers clarity about the coming day of the Lord, and then finally he brings a really specific challenge to the idle, people who were refusing to work normal jobs. And the end of each of these sections is clearly marked by a short closing prayer. Paul opens with a thanksgiving prayer for the Thessalonians' continued faithfulness and love, and specifically for their endurance. He's learned that their Greek and Roman and perhaps even Jewish neighbors have intensified their persecution of these Christians. They're a religious minority facing violent oppression. And Paul's worried that they might give up on Jesus if it gets worse. So Paul reminds them, like he did in the first letter, that their suffering because of being associated with Jesus, it's a way of participating in God's kingdom. Jesus was inaugurated as king by his suffering on the cross, and so his followers will show their victory over the world by imitating Jesus' nonviolence and patient endurance. Paul also reminds them that this won't last forever. When Jesus returns, he will bring his justice to bear on those that have oppressed them and shed the blood of the innocent. Specifically, he says that their punishment is to be banished away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul does not speculate here on the fate of those who reject Jesus, except to say that throughout their lives they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and in the end, they get what they want, relational distance from their creator and their king. And for Paul, this is the ultimate tragedy, to choose separation from Jesus, who is the source of all life and love, is to embrace one's own undoing. He closes this thought by praying that God would use their suffering to bring about deep character change inside of them so that their lives would bring honor to the name of Jesus. Paul then moves on to address a specific issue related to the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord. So somebody in the Thessalonian church community had been spreading wrong information in Paul's name, saying that God's final act of justice on human evil, the day of the Lord, it was upon them, it has come. And these people had likely been predicting dates about the end of all things, and they were frightening other Christians. And you can see why. 
due to the intense persecution, they were vulnerable to somebody claiming that Jesus had already returned like a thief in the night. They've been left behind. Maybe he abandoned the Thessalonians to their suffering. This kind of talk really ticks Paul off. It's misrepresenting his teaching. The return of Jesus should never inspire fear, but rather hope and confidence. Paul reminds them of everything he taught them about Jesus' return back when he was in town. And he gives a short summary here. It's actually too short. This paragraph has lots of puzzles and problems of interpretation. But what's clear is that he cites the well-known theme from the prophets Isaiah and Daniel, that the kingdoms of this world will continue to produce rulers who rebel against God, like Nebuchadnezzar or the king of the north did in the past. These leaders had exalted themselves to divine authority. And for Paul, these ancient kings and prophecies, they give us images. They set out a pattern that he saw fulfilled in his own day in the Roman emperors, Caligula and Nero, and he expected that it would be repeated again, that history would culminate with such a rebellious ruler, empowered by evil itself, someone who will wreak havoc and violence in God's world, but not forever. When Jesus returns, he will confront the rebel and all who perpetrate evil, and he will deliver his people. So Paul's point here is not to give later readers fuel for apocalyptic speculation. Rather, he's comforting the Thessalonians. He's recalling the teachings of Jesus from Mark chapter 13, who said that the events leading up to his return would be very public and obvious. And so they don't need to be scared or worried that they've been left behind. Rather, they need to stay faithful until Jesus returns to deliver them. And so in his closing prayer, he asked Jesus and the Father to comfort and strengthen the Thessalonians to stay faithful to the way of Jesus. Which brings Paul to the final topic. It's a challenge for those who were idle, which doesn't just mean lazy. This refers to people who were irresponsible and who refused to work and provide for themselves, resulting in chaotic personal lives. So Paul had actually addressed this problem in his first letter, and it seems like it's gotten worse. Now, we don't know for certain why some people in this church were refusing to work. It's possible that this problem is connected to the previous one. Maybe some people thought Jesus would return very soon, and so they quit their jobs and dropped out of normal life. But it's more likely that Paul's addressing a problem related to a practice in Roman culture called patronage. So you'd have poor people living in cities, and they would become clients, kind of like personal assistants to wealthy people. And they would live off of their occasional generosity, but there were lots of strings attached. This sometimes involved the clients in their patron's morally corrupt way of life, not to mention it was unpredictable income. So this is what Paul seems to refer to when he says these people lead a disordered life. They're not working and they're meddling in the business of others. So Paul reminds them of the example he gave when he was with them. He didn't ask for their money. He worked a manual labor job so he could provide for himself and so he could serve the Thessalonians free of charge. He says this is the ideal. A follower of Jesus should imitate Jesus' self-giving love by working hard so they can provide for themselves and so their lives can be a benefit to other people. He concludes this with a final prayer that in the midst of all their confusion and suffering that God would grant them peace through the Lord Jesus the Messiah. 
This short letter to the Thessalonians, it helps us see that the early Christian belief in Jesus' return and the hope of final judgment, these ideas were not meant for generating speculation about apocalyptic timelines. Rather, these beliefs brought hope. They inspired faithfulness and devotion to Jesus, especially for persecuted Christians facing violent opposition. And so for later generations of Christians, whether they undergo persecution or not, this letter reminds us that what you hope for shapes what you live for. And that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about. You get all that? <laughs> Gotta love the Thessalonians book. It's actually really deep. Um, all right, do we have any questions about Thessalonians? Yes. Timothy's been with Paul for quite some time. We don't, I don't. I don't know exactly what point Timothy joined Paul, um, but he's been with him for quite some time. Um, probably, uh, we know that he was in the book of Acts. He joined him sometime in the book of Acts, and, uh, and um, he's been picking him up, and teach, treat, he's his main disciple. Um, but... Um, but he's already, at this point, he's already sending Timothy off on his own personal messages. He's discipled him, he's raised him up, taught him, and he's sending him off on his own individual messages by this time. So he's been with them for, uh, for at least some period of time. Any other questions, comments, concerns? All right. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be done. And next week, we will, unless the rapture happens first, we'll be starting on the pastoral letters, which is Timothy's and Titus. Father God, we praise you today, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful blessing to study your word, Lord. We ask that you just continue to speak to our hearts and lead us into further study and further uh, in depth with you, that we may make disciples out of ourselves, but we may also, and we may be disciples, but we also make disciples out of others and, and be disciple makers, that we may live in life and, and take people with us on this journey as we seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.